Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here with Shirsten Hall, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also a doctoral fellow at the Austin Institute and the managing editor of the Genealogies of Modernity blog. Genealogies of Modernity is a a project co-sponsored by Beatrice Institute and the Collegium Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And Shirsten has been involved in our in two uh, Collegium Institute seminars on genealogies of modernity in in past summers. Uh, Her work specializes in 18th century literature and culture. She's published widely not only on 18th century literature, but, but also on 19th century literature and religious culture. She contributes regularly to the Genealogies of Modernity blog and occasionally to other publications such as the New Atlantis, reaching a, a broader public with, with her writing. So, uh, Shirsten Hall, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me here. So, in 18th century England, uh, when you arrived in London, you would go around leaving your calling card at your friends and acquaintances' houses to let them know you were in town, and your calling card would have times on it when they would be when you were available to receive them. And presumably, then, this helped manage the potential for a constant stream of social engagements. And I, it reminds me, then, that it's now common for faculty at my university, and I assume elsewhere, to auto-sign their emails with what you might call a digital calling card, saying that they answer emails you know, between 9 and 5 on weekdays or at, at given times. And this is very much a human resources kind of initiative to promote a healthy work-life balance. But at the same time, I see many of these faculty engaging on social media in a professional or semi-professional capacity in the evening, on weekends, and, and so on. So what would a digital calling card look like for social media? With calling hours, there's a sort of time limit set. So when you would go to pay a call at a newly arrived acquaintance in town, you would have around 15 to 20 minutes, say, to kind of catch up with them. And then it would be socially understood that the meeting was over and you, you just wouldn't overstay your welcome. But there, there was a sense that 15 minutes was the time and it wouldn't be rude to leave after 15 minutes. And I think something like that would be helpful so that you're not kind of stuck, for example, in a like Twitter feud that could last for hours and it's a sign of cowardice or, or something that you, you decide to duck out. Okay. It's interesting because if we're thinking of social media as asynchronous, which it often is, then imposing a, a two-hour window each day when you're available on social media is more a kind of practice of self-discipline. But in Twitter, as I am beginning to learn, uh, as a recent entrant into that space, things get a little more synchronous. And and there is a way in which if you're out of a, an exchange, you might be out of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And it you know, it's fully demanding of our time. And it's not just about self-discipline anymore that you continuously pick up your phone, but it's that you are expected if you're to actually engage with 
people over Twitter or Facebook or Instagram that you have to be kind of constantly vigilant in order to be a part of this exchange. So something I've been thinking about is, is the way that the 18th century and the 17th century became obsessed with how time was measured. So it wasn't really until this period that it was possible for you to kind of track time down to the minute and even the second because, you know, time keeping technology was improving a lot during this period. It was no longer that time was sort of regulated by the church bells in the in the village, for example, that would maybe mark the hour or, or something like that. So you could have your own personal time regulation now. Exactly. And it was still very expensive and it was not quite accurate, but you could get within five minutes of accuracy. And this is sort of an unprecedented um, way to experience time in, in human history. So I've been thinking about this with, with social media, just that it is so time consuming and everything's happened so rapidly. So I think a lot of people just their experience of social media is that it's this inhumane time scale that your, your attention is constantly being demanded your response to, to text. Like if you don't text back within five minutes, it's considered rude because you have your smartphone on you at all times, or even with email, you're sort of expected to respond within, within 24 hours. And it's just such a huge demand on our time that I wonder if we're undergoing a sort of similar crisis of, of time scale. But things have just sped up so quickly. Uh, one of the strongest talking points of early Protestant reformers was that was the recent revelations of forgeries by humanist textual critics. So, for example, Lorenzo Valla revealed that the donation of Constantine, this document that for centuries had grounded the Roman Catholic Church's claim to temporal authority, had been a forgery. And so this Protestant sense of critical superiority continued well into the Enlightenment and into religious discourse in the Church of England in the 18th century. So why are forgeries making such a comeback, particularly among the supposedly enlightened Protestants of the 18th century? I mean, for example, Horace Walpole claimed that the novel The Castle of Otranto was a translation from a medieval manuscript, and maybe this was just a clever satire, but many serious forgeries were perpetrated, such as James McPherson's supposed discoveries of the works of the Scottish Gaelic bard Ossian. Shouldn't these enlightened Protestants have known better? That's a great. I mean, it's funny you bring up uh, the poems of Ossian because there's still actually some debate, as far as I understand, um, as to whether these forgeries are still real or not. Like, we're not we're not entirely sure the extent to which um, McPherson just made them up and the extent to which they were actually based on a sort of medieval, ancient, sort of Gaelic poetic tradition. So we still have not figured it out. Other other cases like what you're saying about the Walpole novel, those, those cases are more, more clear-cut. I mean, my theory about why forgeries were so popular and why they captured people's imaginations was that there was a crisis in the 18th century about the kind of status of what it meant to live in the modern world and the kind of relationship between ancient learning and, and modern, how those, how those two sort of fit together, built off of each other. This was in, in the 17th century and in the 18th century was, was known as the quarrel of the ancients and moderns. It started in the French Academy and then went over to the English Channel. And, and in England, this culminated in an episode that's now called the Battle of the Books. And that, that title comes from a, a satire that Jonathan Swift 
wrote as his, um, his contribution. So in the Battle of the Books, we have this allegory about the library books in St. James's Library in London having a battle. So pages are flying everywhere. Ink is being spilt. Uh, modern writers like Hobbes and Locke are, are sparring with ancients like Aristotle and Cicero. And the whole satire is structured itself as an incomplete manuscript. So the end of the satire, Swift writes, um, the rest is missing in Latin. So we actually don't know how the battle turns out, who, who's victorious, the ancients or the moderns, um, which is interesting because Swift himself was on the side of, of the ancients. And just to kind of get a sense of what was at stake in these two positions and what they were arguing about. So the ancients were rooted in this older humanist Renaissance ideal that wanted to resurrect ancient learning, so poetic practices, rhetorical practices, for the kind of education of statesmen and public figures. So they thought that let's take the sort of treasures of the ancients. We can't really improve on them. This is a you know, an heirloom that we've, we've been given and we're going to make the most of it and kind of keep the torch alive of ancient learning. And on the other hand, so this was, I should clarify that this was sort of during the days of, of Oxford and Cambridge where this whole sort of debate broke out was in these learned university communities that Oxford at this time was mostly a kind of training ground for public figures. So you either trained for the church or trained to become an academic, or it would prepare you to become a sort of member of parliament and a, an active public figure, a sort of gentlemanly uh, man of letters, letters training. But their scholarship was not always very rigorous because they didn't care about the scholarship per se. They cared about how can I use these ancient authors to kind of live my, my best life. So those were the ancients. Um, on the other side were the so-called moderns. Um, they believed that it was possible to surpass ancient learning. This is especially the case in the natural sciences where they figured that all of the new developments in you know, empirical philosophy and investigations of the natural world had far surpassed anything that the ancients had come up with. So they, they believed in the possibility of progress, that the modern world was going to be better, more enlightened than the past. They were also interested in kind of creating these new historiographical methods and practices. So uh, Richard Bentley, um, he was a, a well-known philologist, and his goal was to try, when he was learning about the ancient world, was not to kind of cherry-pick from the ancient tradition and say, okay, this will help me be a better person living in the contemporary era. He was actually wondering, like, what would it like be like to live in the ancient world? How can I reconstruct um, ancient Rome as accurately as possible. And so this is when this battle about forgeries takes place. So the Christchurch academics had just commissioned, this was a, a common practice, you would, you would have these sort of translation competitions. So they had just commissioned the translation of this text called the Epistles of Phalaris, um, supposedly this ancient text, um, but Bentley uh, discovered, had good reason to believe based on his philological investigations that this text was in fact a forgery. And so this was an episode in the Battle of the Books where Bentley 
um, humiliated the academics at Christchurch, um, exposing their new translation as sort of inconsequential. They couldn't even notice that this wasn't actually from the ancient world. And in some ways, you know, the ancients, besides on the ancients, the the came or the Oxford, the Oxford wits were kind of like, well, it doesn't really matter if there's sort of um, pedagogical and life value in this text. It doesn't greatly matter if if it's a forgery. So at the the summer seminar that that we did, we we read Nietzsche's text about antiquaries versus genealogists, and I've been thinking lately about how the Battle of the Books is a sort of interesting intervention in what Nietzsche wrote. So in Nietzsche, the antiquarian is, you know, digging around in dusty tomes. Um, there's no, there's no real use for, you know, why we should sort of become these philologists who understand the ancient world. And then you have the genealogist on the other hand, who is sort of using history for life and kind of undermining some of these, um, these kind of mythologized origins. And so it's, it's interesting to me how, how the moderns in a way who these sort of progressive enlightened figures become in Nietzsche's handling a hundred years later, the sort of Nietzschean antiquarian who's just digging around in ancient history and there's no real use for it. So as I understand it in, in this quarrel, the moderns, were not defined so much then by a rejection of ancient books, right? One of their hallmarks of their research was that their kind of scientific forays into historical criticism raised doubts for them about whether the opinions of the ancients were as settled and durable as their proponents made them out to be. In some cases, the moderns exposed the prized texts of the ancients, but more commonly, I think, wasn't it simply a recognition that the ancients had their own quarrels? I mean, at least that's what seems to be happening in Swift's Battle of the Books. When I got to the end of reading the Battle of the Books, I scratched my head because I was like, wait, didn't I learn that Swift was one of the ancients? Um, But he seems to have this very lively sense of contestation. And so isn't Swift really a modern? And aren't we kind of heirs to Swift's vision of genealogical anxiety? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, that, that was also something I was, I was struck by in the Battle of the Books is the degree to which um, Swift seems fully aware that there's something to the modern position that our sort of knowledge of the past is radically incomplete. I mean, there's, there's even a tension within the modern position that the classical philologists like Bentley, believed that with philological practice and kind of modern historiographical practice, they could actually learn more about the ancients than the ancients knew about themselves. But at the same time, through that kind of inquiry, they were they were realizing all of these gaps in the historical record that a lot of what we thought we knew about the ancients was either incomplete or some kind of forgery. So I've been toying with the idea that the reason why the moderns ended up going with this position of, you know, we have to stick with modern progress and modern learning is because they they realized how incomplete our knowledge of the ancients were, that we couldn't rely on them for our kind of cultural engagement and innovation because it was so incomplete. It wasn't that they had faith in their own progress per se. It was that that's all they have. They don't really actually have a sort of ancient record 
to draw on. So I would call that a, a genealogical anxiety that we have to stick with modern learning because what we know about the past is so incomplete. I'm not sure if that's the same thing that motivates us right now, if why we believe so much in the progress of, of modern learning is because we have a sense of an incomplete past, um, so much as we actually do believe that we are better than what came before us. I think uh, maybe this is not the greatest example, but I think about this with, with teaching undergrads. So I was teaing an American Lit class a couple of summers ago, and we were reading some Puritan theological texts from early America. And one of the students commented that, you know, now that we are experts on Calvinist theology and how, how silly for them to, to believe these things. So the student thought that she was an expert on Calvinist theology because she had only read one sermon and assumed that because what had happened in the past was somehow in the dark ages or something. So it, this brings us to the larger question of genealogical anxiety. And I think that this is beautifully put by a contemporary philosopher, and I want to read a little bit of a quotation from her. But I, as I take it, these questions were questions that, that really were arising in the 18th century um, among scholars on both sides of this debate. And it's basically like, what if I'm just lucky that my intuitions about the deepest structures of life are correct because I was born into a family and a culture that just happens to hold the correct beliefs about reality? And so how am I to defend my deepest intuitions when they're just a result of genealogical luck. And uh, I think Srinivasan puts this really well. She says, of course, my beliefs seem true to me. My values seem genuinely valuable. They are, after all, my beliefs and my values. But wouldn't my beliefs also seem true to me even if I believed the opposite? If I believed in the inferiority of women, wouldn't I do so with just as much conviction as I in fact believe in sexual equality? If I thought of the world not in terms of justice and rights, but in the more ancient terms of honor, shame, and pride, would I not feel that these concepts are the ones that get at the deep structures of morality? What am I supposed to do with this other me, this shadow me, this me who believes the opposite of everything I believe? who values what I disvalue, who articulates the world in terms of concepts that are alien to my own? What if she is the right one and I am the shadow? And I, I take it that that this is a really emergent question in the 18th century, especially, and, and, and it comes to a head in, in the way that the 18th century is returning to classical, not just classical literature, but but the heroes of classical history, the, the moral exemplars of classical history, who were not Christian. How were they grappling with these issues of genealogical anxiety? Yeah, that, oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, so in my, the first chapter of my dissertation, right, uh, which I finished a while ago and still need to return to, I've been looking at one of the most popular plays of the 18th century called Cato. It was a tragedy. It was essentially uh, the Hamilton of the day, the founders of America loved it. George Washington staged it at um, Valley Forge to rally the morale of the troops. And um, Patrick Henry's famous um, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death is, is a sort of adaptation of, of this line. So anyway, it was this immensely popular play. Most scholars kind of look at it from the perspective of its significance politically. It, it's complicated because it sort of united opposing Whig and Tory sentiments somehow. They sort of each claimed it for their own side. But really beyond the political significance, what I've been looking at is the figure of, of Cato the Younger. So this play dramatizes the final 
final hours of Cato's life uh, at Utica, and famously, Cato ended his life by suicide. And so this becomes a sort of profound problem for the 18th century. They really admired, admired Cato, but at the same time, they could not endorse his, his suicide. So Joseph Addison, who was the author of the play, his cousin Eustace Budgel, um, this was actually years after Joseph Addison died, but Eustace Budgel got into a lot of financial trouble. Um, he got involved with this, this free thinker and these inheritance issues. So his life was sort of falling apart. But he decided in 1737 to commit suicide by drowning himself in the Thames. When they finally found his body, they also discovered when going back to his house that he had left a suicide note that read, what Cato did and Addison approved cannot be wrong. So he had justified his suicide based on his cousin's play. And what's troubling about that is that it was this universally admired play. And if you actually dig into the the homiletic literature in the 18th century, Cato and Addison's play is is evoked all the time. So on one hand, you have clergymen who are saying that Cato is is more instructive than most sermons that you hear preached from the pulpit. But on the other hand, you have other clergymen saying, no, actually, this is a horrible example to set, and you can't portray Cato as this hero because he kills himself at the end. And in this moment of pride, he, he wasn't able to wait for God to and, and for the plan of providence to determine the course of his life. And he was overwhelmed by suffering, and rather than endure the suffering, he decides to end it himself. So it's read as this kind of moment of either pride or uh, cowardice, or usually the two kind of combined. And so to get to your question about genealogical anxiety, though, there is a sense that, you know, Cato was this really admirable figure, and that he had actually come really close to Christian revelation in a lot of ways. And this was similar to other ancients. Um, Socrates is another great example. Cicero is often invoked. So Addison, the author of Cato, uh, wrote a periodical called The Spectator, and he's always invoking the names of ancient figures like Socrates and kind of using them as, as moral exemplars and saying, you know, Socrates was a better Christian than all of you, but he did not have divine revelation. So there's this kind of profound inequality that Socrates and Cato happen to be born in the wrong century, but they came closer to kind of Christian revelation and actually made better use of what they could gather from natural sort of theology just by observing God's created universe and natural law and observing, um, you know, deducing kind of moral, moral principles and whatnot, and that they came closer to being better Christians, even though they did not, they were born simply at the wrong time than most. And to be clear, Addison is not, yeah. uh, he's not an opponent of Christianity. He, he genuinely thinks that it's divine revelation. And so it's not that, it's not that Christianity is the reason that people are less virtuous. Right. It, that's correct. He, yeah. yeah okay. He's kind of thinking of it as an inheritance that you've been, or you can think of it as the parable of the talents. Um, my other favorite 18th century writer, Samuel Johnson was, was haunted by the parable of, of the talents and thought he had made profound misuse of, of what, of the gifts that he had been given. So he was convinced that he was going to hell. But anyway, so that you could think of the talents like, 
the Christian who happened to have been born in the year 1712, right, has been given this great inheritance and is expected to make use much use of it. Someone like Socrates, born before Christian revelation, has been given little, but has invested his few talents well. So I, th- I think that's the situation Addison is driving at, is using these ancient figures to shame Christians and saying, if Cato be- could become such a great hero, even without the benefit of Christian revelation, he could get so close and live such something that was so close to a Christian life. You, you know, modern English depraved free thinkers and, and deists, you have Christian revelation, you have this knowledge, you have the light, but you have rejected it. So using these ancient figures to shame shame Christians. And, and this is not just Addison, this happens in, in all sorts of sermons from the 18th century. Why do you think Cato is no longer performed? I mean, I, I, I tried to find a, a video of the play, and even on the very pricey theater and video database that I have a subscription to through Pitt, it's there. There's just never been a recording of it. I know. Yeah, it's. I would love. I would love to see a production of Cato. Unfortunately, 18th century drama is just not not in vogue right now. It's it's very rare to see plays from this era staged. I'm trying to Why think. Why do you of, think that is? Well, I have I have friends um, who work on modern drama and are, are drama historians and. They love to say all sorts of mean things about about 18th century theater, like it's all bad. It's 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 not you know it's not very good. It's just not as profound. It's you know there are all these comedies that have no substance to them. Maybe I'm misrepresenting what they've said about 18th century drama, but I also think that a lot of it people just don't don't read, and a lot of it is also very kind of topical too. So unless you're really kind of immersed in 18th century cultural history or, or, or political life, it's, it's sometimes hard to pick up what makes something funny or sort of pointed or profound. But I think that, you know, that as Americans, Cato, a tragedy speaks to us still because it, it has these rousing speeches and defense of liberty and, and, uh, and that kind of showdown between liberty and death. Yeah. So the the thing with Cato, even when it was first performed, people really admired, they loved the speeches. Those speeches were excerpted all the time, but as a play, it was, it was a failure. I think it was Edward Young who commented that, that watching Cato was like watching marble statues on the stage. Okay. Now I propose a flash session of the game. Would you rather where you have to pick between two often undesirable options or two wonderful options that you would never (laughs) in real life want to choose exclusively. You can answer it simply and move on to the next one, or you can elaborate. It's up to you. Are you game? I am. Yeah, I love this. Would you rather be marooned on Robinson Crusoe's island or the island in the TV series Lost? Well, life would be a lot more interesting on the Lost island. It depends on whether I get companions there or not. If I were on the Crusoe island... I would be... You would be alone. I would be totally alone, and that would be horrible. If I were on the Lost Island, I would have friends, but there would be a lot of terrifying things happening. Uh, But I would probably also get bored on the Robinson Crusoe Island. So tentatively, I would say the Lost Island, just because it would keep life more interesting. Would you rather attend a 10-day retreat with the Jane Austen Pineapple Admiration Society or spend 10 days at ASEX, the American Society of 18th Century Studies annual conference? 
Is there really a Jane Austen Pineapple Appreciation Society? Yes, they they uh, they dress up in Jane Austen costumes and do Jane Austen things. Oh, oh, is this the Jane Austen Society of North America? This is the uh, British version of that. Ah, okay. Yes, I am familiar with with the American Jane Austen Society. It's it's actually similar to the Robinson Crusoe question. The Jane Austen Society is a little bit more like Lost. Like you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and there are always people wandering around in, in bonnets asking if you've read Tom Jones yet. And, you know, wanting to see if, if you'll dance or if you have opinions about, you know, Mr. Darcy emerging from the lake in a, in a wet shirt. The <laughs> Asex has a lot less variety, but it, it would be a lot more predictable and sort of more professionally um, sort of austere and respectable. <laughs> Jane Austen's aborted juvenile novel, Love and Friendship, or Whit Stillman's 2016 movie based on it? Whit Stillman. I really love Whit Stillman. He tweeted recently about how he wants to film a Samuel Johnson movie, and I'm <laughs> completely there for that. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope it does. He tends to eventually do what he says he's going to do. Yeah, I just have to get in from the ground floor, you know? Samuel Johnson's Dictionary or the Oxford English Dictionary? Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, absolutely. It's, um, I saw, I held a, one of Johnson's Dictionaries for the first time last year. I take my students to the Ransom Center at the University of Texas, the, the archives there, and we, we have a class and I, you know, call up books from, from the, the archive and they, they get to learn a little bit about book history. And so, I called up a Johnson dictionary and it is this mammoth. Like I felt, I, I was afraid I was going to drop it, but it's, it's just so big and so weighty. It, it felt, it felt like a sort of the closest I could come to a, you know, a physical encounter with Samuel Johnson himself. Uh, would you rather have the diary keeping habits of Samuel Pepys or James Boswell? James Boswell. He's a better storyteller than Pepys is. He writes his diaries and dialogue sometimes. So it's more fun to read. Oh, and I was just going to ask, which would you rather read? But you've answered that. Yeah. George Eliot or T.S. Eliot? George Eliot. Would you rather have gout, the quintessential disease of the 18th century, or a mild depressive anxiety disorder, the quintessential disease of the 21st century? I would rather have, I would rather have melancholia, I think, which is also the <laughs> great guess. affliction of the 18th century. <laughs> James Boswell and Johnson Though I'm, I'm, this is one one area where I'm especially be, glad to be living in the 21st century is that Johnson was, you know, haunted by inner demons his whole life and thought it so, thought that he was going to go insane and was going to entirely lose his rational faculty. So I'm glad that we have better better understanding of mental health, even if it has a long way to go. So the debate over the splendid vices; these are the these pagan virtues and the, the core of this debate, uh, which goes all the way back to Augustine, is whether virtuous acts are meritorious and are truly conducive to the good if they do not have the aid of divine grace. And it seems especially relevant today because I think for those of us who have a foot in the you know rarefied world of of elite culture, which is often considered to be the most staunchly secular part of contemporary American society, it's really remarkable how much virtue we find in that, in that world. There are many occasions in which my colleagues who are not practitioners of any religious tradition have been Christ to me. And I look to 
certain of my friends who do not see themselves as participating in any religious tradition as real exemplars of virtues that I want to acquire and that I fail to embody. So in the 18th century, when there really were no professed atheists, and the closest thing you could find were, were free thinkers, and free thinkers themselves could be devout Christians at the same time, this puzzle played out more in the classical imagination, right? Where somebody like Cato is looking over our shoulder and we're hoping to live up to his example of authenticity or fortitude. What can that debate teach us about the real-life experience of the pagan virtues, the, the splendid vices? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's important not to take for granted this question of, is it possible to be a good person if you're not a Christian? Like, this was, this was a central debate heating up, right, 18th century Europe. Before that, it was more or less safely assumed in the, in the Western tradition that, and, and this goes back to the splendid vices debate, that if you are going to be a truly virtuous person, it has to be sort of animated by God's grace and your knowledge of, of revelation. Otherwise, things that you do that are seemingly meritorious are actually not meritorious without God's grace, because if you are sinful and fallen, nothing that you do on your own has any merit. So because of the influence of freethinkers who they were called freethinkers because they didn't want to be constrained by any notions of, of authority or sort of previous traditions. They just thought, let's, you know, let's just start from square one and let's just ask the questions that we've always assumed that we know the answers to. And so one of those big questions in ethics in the 18th century was, is it possible to be a good person without being a Christian? And this was incredibly disturbing to many people. And this is not a disturbing question to us anymore, and rightly so. And I think in a lot of ways, like you were saying, there are plenty of, of non-Christians um, who have these great virtues that we would wish to aspire to be more like them. Um, we see the ways in which we fall short and they, they succeed. So switching gears, Stanley Kubrick's classic science fiction film 2001 A Space Odyssey at the end of it, in the finale, David Bowman, who's the you know last surviving astronaut on the Discovery One, after he endures a psychedelic descent through Jupiter's atmosphere, he finds himself in this room lavishly decorated in 18th century style. What's going on? Well, this was something that was very perplexing to original viewers of, of the film back in the 60s. I think some of the reviews stated that it really flipped people out when he arrives in Jupiter, and it's something that is very similar to Earth. In fact, it's the most kind of stuffy, polite, elegant, civilized image that you could confront when you're out in the vast wilderness of, of the unknown in space. My theory, and this, this moment in 2001 has become my sort of personal manifesto about why we need to care about what happened in the 18th century. So I think that this this room in 2001, um, decorated in a sort of 18th century style, is a kind of metaphor for for progress and sort of social inquiry. So this kind of takes us back to the, the debate about the ancients and the moderns. So the moderns said, we just need to keep kind of progressing. And so maybe the wisdom of the ancients is that even if we do continue to progress, we still end up back where we were hundreds of years ago. So 
I think that it's this moment of what the theater historian Joseph Roach calls the deep 18th century. So he says that the deep 18th century is the 18th century that still exists with us. It's a sort of series of recurring performances that we continue to enact every day. And just at a very surface level, we see this with the the genres that we read today, the most popular genres. So without the 18th century, you know, we wouldn't be reading novels, we wouldn't really be reading newspapers, um, online periodicals, those just were the product of, of the 18th century. So we still, still inhabit that space in a lot of ways. Would this be the answer to why the period of the period costume drama is so often the 18th century? Or, or do you see something else going on there? Uh, so often in the 18th century? Yeah. I would argue that there isn't enough 18th century period drama. I think the last couple of decades have been mostly focused on 19th century period drama, the Bronte sisters, um, Jane Austen, technically, I mean, she's the closest we get to 18th century period drama. My theory is that we are hopefully going to go through a renaissance of 18th century period drama soon. If anything, like the favorite is, is some indication. I think it's a very funny movie. And it, it gets closest in some ways to capturing a comedic 18th century sensibility. But there's so many wonderful 18th century comedies like Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, uh, Humphrey Clinker and Roderick Random by Tobias Smollett. There are all of these wonderful comic novels that the past couple of decades, which have prioritized earnest, deeply felt romanticized um, period dramas, just hasn't had a taste for. So I'm hoping that's coming around the corner. And when you say comic, I, I think you're using the colloquial sense of that, that they're laugh out loud funny. I watched the favorite shortly after watching Mania or Manic or but it was another it was the Emma Stone psycho slapstick comedy, which was really fantastic. And then this eighteenth century period piece with with Emma Stone and and it's just slapstick all over the place. Is that is that consistent with the eighteenth century comic novel or is there something what's what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in my my review of the new adaptation from this year of Emma, which I had a lot of high hopes for because the previews made it look extremely funny and fresh. And Austin is often undersold as a comic writer. Like I said, they tend to be sentimentalized, romanticized. When people think of Jane Austen, they usually think of Kira Knightley emerging a rainstorm with Mr. Darcy and, you know, Mr. Darcy saying, you have bewitched me body and soul, or they think of Colin Firth emerging from a pond in a wet shirt. And yeah, so Jane Austen has become this kind of romanticized writer, but she's very funny. Her social satire is very sharp. And so when I saw the, the previews for Emma, I'm like, finally here, here is the movie that will remind people that Jane Austen is funny and will help them to see that when they're encountering her novels. What about Austin Land? Have you seen that? Yeah, I liked. I I, I enjoyed is that. that Jane, is that a Jane? Is that Is that consistent with Jane Austen's sense of satire? Yes, I, th- I actually think it is in some ways more than the new adaptation of of Emma. So the key to Jane Austen's sense of humor is about, and this and this actually goes back to her admiration for Henry Fielding as a novelist and satirist, is distinguishing reality from delusion. So Jane Austen is interested in in exposing affectation 
um, and vanity. So all of the sort of lies that we, we tell us our, ourselves and, and exposing that kind of folly to, to ridicule. So in Austin land, um, this woman really idolizes Jane Austen and goes on this fantastic vacation to this resort that pretends to be a version of Regency England. And she's forced to confront her, her sense that this is just an illusion that she's living through, that there's nothing really authentic about this experience that she's surrounded by people who are play acting. And so I think that this is a really sort of clever twist on um, Jane Austen's own sense of humor, which is distinguishing between when people are being affected when, when something is not as it seems and virtue and wisdom is learning to distinguish between um, falsehood and reality. So a reader of yours asks, Austin is the mother of realism and we wouldn't have Henry James without her, but she has a reputation now for being good escapist reading. It seems to me that it's more than playing up the romantic elements and stressing the relatability. We also portray her novels as a safe escape from reality. And she references the Jane Austen Society retreats and things. To what extent do you think this is also due to movie adaptations? Or what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think the, the impetus behind Jane Austen as, as escapist reading tends to be this reading of Jane Austen as like, oh, when there were simpler times when when men would court women and everything was much clearer and, and times were easier. There's actually been a lot of this surrounding uh, quarantine at the moment. People love to talk about how quarantine has forced us to return to these simpler Jane Austen-esque times when the most dramatic thing that happens to us is that we go on a walk or, or, or a turn around, around the block. So I think people have, have turned to Jane Austen as a sort of antidote to their busy, highly structured lives. Well, my middle school daughters have been reading Sense and Sensibility in a quarantine reading group with some friends, and and I asked them early on who their favorite character was, and they both said Elizabeth Bennet, and I said, well, and who else? Like, who's, who's, who's your second favorite character? And they both said, Mr. Wickham. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, 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 and then as, they, as, as it gradually dawned on them, the true character of Mr. Wickham, as they were disillusioned, it was actually, I think, anything but comforting. So, unfortunately, oh, uh, so still, still, Jane Austen is, is still disturbing people, even in quarantine. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Shirsten Hall, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a delight, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.